Uh, welcome to Morning Talk Show. Um, today is a special day for me because this is my interview with one of my personal um, heroes, Dr. Ian McGilchrist. He wrote the book, uh, The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World, which is a sprawling work that covers um, so much more than just the divide between the left and right brain, but it actually just explodes that um, divided brain and the, and the two sides of the brain out and, and, and expounds upon it, finding evidence for this divided brain uh, in, in art and, and literature and history. Um, and it's really been a huge book for me. And even before I read it, uh, in interviews with him and lectures that he gave uh, on the internet have, have just made a huge impact on my life. So he's got a new book called, um, his new book is called The Matter With Things, and it picks up uh, at where the uh, divided brain left off and answers or at least begins to set a context for answering uh, or approaching some of the deepest questions about being a human. Uh, so I couldn't believe that I was able to speak to him and, and I enjoyed the conversation so much. So we talk about his new book and then partway through, um, I kind of took it in the direction of talking about longing and, and, and desire as uh, kind of one of our possible entry points into um, a transform, transformation and a transformed life and, and possibly kind of transcending um, the uh, materialist um, just worldview that has been kind of passively passed on to all of us. So um, yeah, I hope you like the conversation. Uh, please like and subscribe uh, and ring the bell to get notified about further conversations. Leave a comment uh, below and, and we've had some great conversation and comments on other videos. So I hope to get more of that. So thanks for watching. This is my interview with Ian McGilchrist and I still can't believe I get to say that. Uh, well, I see the sun shining through from the Isle of Skye behind you. Um, it's a very rare occasion. <laughs> is that right? It's kind of, is it kind of a, uh, a gloomy place? Yes. Uh, a lot of mist and, and rain um, and utterly wonderful days, you know, because you get light playing. In fact, pure sunshine is quite disappointing because you need the clouds and the mist and things to give it the whole drama, you know? Right. Yeah. I, I've, uh, I've listened to you speak enough and, uh, that uh, I actually, unlike most uh, people that I would watch on YouTube or listen to, I actually imagine where you are. Like I, I've, I've looked up the Isle of Skye. I kind of imagine you situated there. Do you, do you tend to have, do you wander around? Like, do you like to uh, get out and wander? Have you done that today or anything? This, this afternoon, I went on a walk between half past one and half past five with some uh, people that I've uh, never met before, but uh, got an introduction from a friend. And uh, so, yes, I mean, I don't take as much exercise as I should because the business of working on this new book has been all consuming. I mean, it's really wow. been oh, shattering. Wow. It's been such a labor. I mean, wow. I've been a junior doctor in, in, a, in, a, in a system where they could make you work 120 hours a week and you're dealing with all kinds of incredibly stressful situations. But, you know, this has been very stressful. <laughs> well, it's an, in, it's an internal thing as well, right? Like it, it's, it, mm -hmm. a lot of it probably is taking place in your mind. And, and yeah, that's a totally uh, different 
kind of inescapable uh, effort. Yeah. And clearly, I mean, clearly there's some, some internal drive that you have to, to clarify and illuminate all of these things that you probably can't shut Mm. off like a, you know, like a shift at a job in the same way or something. No, no, exactly right. I got to a point where I could see that I was so far into this that I had to carry on. And there was a very long haul ahead. But there really wasn't any way to avoid it at a certain point. It was as if the book took over my life and me for a while and just demanded to be written. Well, does it feel different than The Master and His Emissary did? Or did you have a similar kind of possession? for that no it, it it it's different in a number of ways i mean the master in his embassy i wrote well unbelievably well i was still working 60 hours a week as a clinician and uh i don't quite know how i did that actually um i sometimes look at it and think how did you find the time to do this but in writing this new book the matter with things um I've written it in the last 10 years during which I've, uh, I've done no clinical work. I've really devoted myself to lecturing, writing, talking. Um, so it's different in that respect. Um, and I think it's just the sheer scale of it. Um, to give you an idea, it's 1600 pages in two volumes with 5,800 notes, a bibliography that's about 230 pages long in small print. And I've read them. Yeah. Because you have to in this area. Yeah. Um, And it's got over 100 illustrations. Um, Oh. Everything about it is unusual. (laughs) And everything about it demands the most incredible attention to detail it's what I call the left hemisphere's revenge you know the, the last eight or nine months I've just been my my brain's gone into a knot of phenomenal attention to detail <laughs> so, right yeah, yeah 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 the left the less that's kind of hilarious because your first book I mean we're just right into things here but uh your your first book mm. which I, I listened to the 54 hours of uh on audiobook um, oh, right. is, uh, is attempting to, uh, you know, uh, for people who, I mean, I can't imagine someone watching this interview who knows me, but doesn't know you, that seems impossible. But anyway, if they don't, that book was, was about, re, uh, kind of, uh, reestablishing the, the preeminence of the right brain of the less, uh, detail oriented, the less abstracted, the more holistic, uh, part of the brain. And so, uh, um, and, and now you're saying that the, the left, the left side of your brain, which got short shrift in that, uh, or was maybe uh, spoken about in uh, in not the most glowing terms, in uh, in the first in the first book, well, not your first book, but in the master and his emissary, is now a necessary, an extremely necessary part of this second book, even more so than than before. Um, mm. So. So how would you how would you sum up the the matter with things? Uh, you've probably done it briefly many times. You have a brief way to say what it is yes. I've, I've heard but yeah uh, I, I i should have uh, the elevator pitch yes um <laughs> it's basically taking on where the master and his embassy left off because it was obvious to me that if i'm right that the world comes into being differently 
for the two halves of the brain because they pay different attention. And the kind of attention you pay alters what you find and it alters you. It's a reciprocal effect. Um, and so it really meant thinking about not just in abstract terms about the difference between the hemispheres and not just about the historical way in which this has played out in the history of Western Europe, which I dealt with in the second part of the Maastricht's Emissary, but really about the most basic questions, who are we, what is the world, and what is our relationship with the cosmos? <laughs> Small questions, eh? So that's mm. why it's a big book. Um, but it seems to me very important because I don't have to mention, obviously, the terrific problems that we face, the, the business of the uh, assault on nature, uh, the um, devastation of the way of life of indigenous peoples all over the world. Um, and even it seems to me that we are now rapidly committing suicide as a civilization. We're doing everything we can to destroy what is best about it. Um, this is, these are very serious problems, but if there's one thing that's more serious, it's about the philosophy of who we are and what the world is. It underlies all those problems. It's because we don't have a proper idea at all of who we are or of what the world is, that we've got ourselves into these situations. And even if we could get out of those situations, it wouldn't be any good if we carried on thinking and behaving in the same way. So we have to change. Yeah. And it's my attempt to explain why the way that we have often been told to think about ourselves in the world, which is a materialist reductionist account that effectively the world is an inert mechanism, that we human beings are the playthings of chance, that we um, are basically programmed to compete with one another to the death. All of this is completely wrong, uh, not just philosophically, but it has no basis in science. Science doesn't compel you to believe any of this. It's a philosophy that has hijacked the sane and dignified voice of science. And it's very loud these days in a lot of the public voices of science and not just science, of politics and beyond. So what I'm trying to do is to show, first of all, that this is a very unusual way to think about the world. And when you look at how the two halves of the hemisphere, the two halves of the brain conceive the world, you can see that this is deeply skewed towards a certain viewpoint, which is the one that the left hemisphere holds. And I'm able to show that, I don't know if you want me to go into any more detail yeah, at this no. stage, but- Oh, please. Okay, yeah. yeah. No, I, I yeah. Well, I think it goes in three parts. There are three parts to the book actually, although it's in two volumes. The first two parts in volume one, uh, entitled The Way to Truth or The Ways to Truth. Now that's uh, rather a bold thing to say because like most people, I'm prepared to believe that truth is never simple or single, but we can't 
dispense with the idea of truth. If we didn't think that some things were truer than others, we couldn't say anything. We couldn't do anything. We wouldn't have any reason for getting out of bed in the morning, certainly not for listening to this podcast. So we must believe there is some kind of a truth. It's how do we access it? And I suggest that there are six or seven ways in which we have, if you like, access to whatever reality there is that is not simply generated by our minds. Because I don't believe that everything I'm doing now is just generated by my mind, that you are a phantasm uh, of my imagination. I believe there is a world and that we all in our different ways, we see different aspects of it, we bring it into being slightly differently, but nonetheless, there is a core reality. Now, how do we get any kind of portals on that, any, any sort of ways in which we can look into that reality and, and, and take it on board? Well, I, I believe that the main ones would be, probably we could argue about the detail, but they're probably things like attention in the first place. If you don't attend in a certain way, you won't find anything there. And the way you attend alters what you find. Then there's perception, which is not the same as attention but is obviously related to attention. And then thirdly, there's the judgments that we form both on our attention and our perception. Mm. And those judgments in turn are informed by our emotional and social intelligence and by our cognitive intelligence, good old fashioned IQ, and by our capacity for creative thinking. These are the ways in which we get to grips with and understand reality at the most basic level. Mm. I take each of these at a time and show that the right hemisphere is better able to use these and uses them more intelligently than the left hemisphere. The left hemisphere is prone to delusions. So the subtitle of my book is Our Brains Are Delusions and the Unmaking of the World, because that's what I believe we're doing. We're unmaking the world with our brains. Mm. Our brains are there to make the world, but we're using them now to destroy the world. I love that. So, so the thing that the, the, uh, the part one tells us is two things, really, two important things. One is that, quite simply, the right hemisphere is more reliable. In other words, we would get caught out by reality much more often if we trusted in the world according to the left hemisphere. Mm. Um, we, we would believe all kinds of crazy things and we'd suddenly find that life was unlivable because we simply weren't in touch with it. Whereas if we believe largely what the right hemisphere believes, we've got a, an in on reality. So that's mm. the first thing. The second thing is that we now know what the signature or the hallmark of a left hemisphere take on something is. And if we want to avoid being mistakenly um, uh, taken by, by a paradigm, by a, by a take on the world, if we, if we wish to avoid being mistaken, it's good for us to know whether this kind of a way of looking at the world is likely to come from the right hemisphere or from the left, because we mm. can establish that the right hemisphere is more veridical. Mm. Now, that's a step forward because mainly in philosophy one is faced with the fact that well there are two different ways of looking at this or you know half a dozen ways of course but there are often paradoxes and we have to say well this is this looks 
you know, like it's probably true. This, which doesn't fit with it at all, also looks like it's possibly true. We just have to shrug our shoulders and go, well, we don't know. Well, now we don't need to, because in fact, I have a whole chapter on paradox in which I take, I, I don't know, about 30 uh, academic paradoxes recognized by philosophers and show mm. how they can be viewed with, with benefit as being the two ways in which the same thing is construed by mm. the left and the right hemisphere. Yeah, wonderful. And the left hemisphere's take on it is usually the one that we can't possibly believe. Thus, for example, Achilles and the tortoise. Um, should I just gloss that and say- Yeah, yeah, the... very briefly, because I don't know that particular one, sorry. Yeah, so this is a paradox of Zeno, you know, who's a, yeah. um, an ancient Greek philosopher. And um, Achilles was famed for his swiftness of foot. And the um, tortoise uh, challenges Achilles to a race. And Achilles just sort of laughs. And the tortoise says, no, 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 uh, you can never overtake me. And so Achilles just laughs. And he gives, being a generous guy, he gives the tortoise a big head start. Now, Zeno can prove that, in fact, the tortoise is right, that Achilles can never overtake the tortoise. Because Achilles' first task is to get to where the, Achilles, the tortoise started. Okay, yeah. But by the time he gets there, the tortoise has moved on. So now he's got to get to the place where the tortoise then is. But by the time he's got there, the tortoise has moved on. And so in smaller and smaller increments, he's getting closer to this tortoise, but never able to overtake it. Mm -hmm. right. Now that, I can explain why that is a typical fallacy that comes from the thinking of the left hemisphere. And mm -hmm. obviously we know that Achilles can overtake the tortoise. So, and most of these paradoxes, we know perfectly well that in the real world, certain things happen that way. But something, a logical argument appears to suggest something right. that's deeply counterintuitive. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's the point of part one. Part two, I can sum up very quickly. It's like, which we've, we've talked about the portals or the, 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 the entry points on reality. What about the paths that we would follow, the longer term paths towards some truth about reality? Well, I think everyone would agree that science is going to be one of them, a very important one. And another is likely to be reason. I think most people would accept that. Not everybody, but most people would probably accept that intuition is another important way in which we mm -hmm. uh, arrive at certain understandings of truth. And I would argue the imagination is too very important. I think actually that we misunderstand what is meant by imagination, what is meant by science, what is meant by reason, but that's another story. Mm. But when you look at them as they are most valuable, again, each of them is required. They're not necessarily in conflict. And the best part of them is provided by the right hemisphere, not the left. And this is true of science. And it's true of reason. I spent a lot of time rehearsing um, how it was that scientists and mathematicians made their great discoveries and great leaps forward. And as um, has been recognized by a number of important 20th century scientists, they never or very rarely made their great advances by following the scientific method by testing to exhaustion all sorts of possibilities right. and, you know. Yeah, instead, 
they saw oh. something that they, they they saw a gestalt, a new form right. that answered something. And it often came in a flash. It doesn't mean that they didn't have to do a lot of hard work before that flash would come, but it didn't come from the left hemisphere's procedural plodding. It came from the right, right. hemisphere. And there's yeah. absolutely incontrovertible evidence that those aha moments of intuitive insight come from the right superior temporal sulcus. Einstein on the bus, so, I believe. There was uh, there was a time when Einstein was uh, on the bus imagining the uh, the theory of relativity uh, as an imagine an, an imaginative exercise. Uh, that kind of thing is what you're kind of referring to. It wasn't uh, it wasn't a formula. It was like imagining the bus traveling and the light traveling, and it was all in the imagination. Yes. Yes, his daughter uh, refers to him sometimes in the middle of trying to work out his theory of relativity, sitting at the piano and playing chords and then suddenly going, I've got it, and going upstairs and, you know, writing things down. Um, Amazing. And interestingly, there is a story also of uh, Poincaré, Henri Poincaré, who was an early 20th century, uh, late 19th century, early 20th century French uh, mathematician. And he... Um, Sorry, that's Schrodinger's cat that's got him. Oh, I did awesome. To... No, no, he's welcome. I... He or she no, is I welcome. I told Schrodinger to keep that cat out of it. And <laughs> obviously, I thought it was dead. <laughs> it's all too alive. <laughs> and it, well, well, you, that answers that, well. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> You're dead. <laughs> Off you go. Um, so, yes, Poincaré, anyway, um, it describes this thing about how he was... Uh, he spent two weeks um, trying to uh, come to an understanding of what he later called Fuchsian equations. And one day he just sort of gave up and went into town. And as he put his foot on the step of the bus to go back to his house, suddenly he saw what it was. And it took him you know, a while to write it down. But mm. so any, in any case, what I'm really saying is that the most valuable parts of reason without the right hemisphere's contributions to reason. It makes a big contribution to reason. It's completely wrong to think that sort of science and reason are left hemisphere. Right. They're not. They're yeah. a balance of the two. And if they lose the balance, they become, you know, pale imitations of what they should be. Right. Um, so effectively, what I'm suggesting is that you can't tackle a problem by simply using one of science, reason, intuition, or imagination. They need to be held in balance. Mm. And we need to respect the right hemisphere contributions. So that's volume one. Wow. <laughs> and then there's, volume, then there's volume two, which is the part three, which this has been leading to. And it's called, What Then Is True? So in other words, it's an interrogative, not a statement. But I'm asking, what can we come to feel we have a reasonable understanding of that it's mm. more likely that it's like this than mm. not. Yeah. And I'm looking at the really fundamental questions, the structure of the cosmos, time, space, matter, consciousness, um, value, purpose, and the sense of the sacred. Wow. And um, so, this is why it's a long book. Yeah. Um, and in the first, the first two chapters of that part, I look at the coincidentia oppositorum, the coincidence of opposites, which is an important 
point that in our Newtonian world we have failed to respect, but in mm -hmm. other cultures is understood and was in our own in, right. uh, up until about the 17th century. Uh, and then the paradoxes of the one and the many, how the, these elements of uniqueness and the general, mm. the one and the many, how they relate to one another. And then off into, as I say, time, space, matter, consciousness and the rest of it. So, wow. sorry, that was a very, very long, you said you, you must have a short version of what's going on, but I'm no. sorry, I don't. Uh, well, I mean, my level of my level of interest will support any amount of words you wanted to say on it. Um, uh, so that, <laughs> it, it was a long elevator ride, but but it but it, it, could, it could still have. It could still have been said on an elevator if if there were a lot of people getting on and off at different floors, but uh, no. In the Empire State Building, yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It's it's wonderful though, and so <laughs> one one of the first things that struck me when you were describing what this book is about is how um, it actually really answers something that um, was coming up in my mind over and over as I finished the Master and His Emissary, which was that. Um, Okay, how will I put this? Okay, the master and his emissary. I found the uh, discussions of uh, things like art and and uh, and and that kind of thing near the end to be so kind of nuanced that there wasn't a clear and obvious um, agenda that you had. You know, like many times when I've heard people discuss like modern art, for example, they'll kind of ascribe a negative motivation to modern art in a way that doesn't jive with. The, the modern artists that I know, um, but what you were discussing was so kind of like you'd go in a certain direction and I'd say, okay, maybe going this way. And then, and then you'd kind of express uh, that, okay, the great okay. contribution of modernism was, was this, and here's this uh, book of poetry that suggests that with the freedom, the seeming freedom that modernism brought, there was a lot of dross, mm. but there was a lot of gold that would never have been discovered in the Romantic era in which there were fewer luminaries uh, and more tepid, um, you know, uh, people at the margins. Yes. Um, and so the, que the thing that kept coming up, the only conclusion I could come up with is that we're really left, if, if we really want to engage with all of that left brain, right brain stuff, we're really left with just trying to be more human, just trying to understand what the human is, because it seems to me mm. that the right brain is uh, the right brain is what connects us to being uh, increasingly human, whatever that which is a, mis yes. a mysterious thing. And the left brain is what increasingly cuts us off from our humanity, which is kind of a, mm. an unfortunate thing that I mean, it's really unfortunate that we even have that capacity to be cut off from our humanity. And I think it's what's being described in in the Garden of Eden. I think it's the first, you know, the first human story in the Bible is the, I mean, that's just an opinion. Well, the eating of the apple from the... Yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah, it, it yes. was the beginning of the intellect that was able to separate us from, from God. Uh, yes. I mean, and, the, 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 that, that myth of the, the apple, uh, of the tree of knowledge, is really the tree of the kind of knowledge that the left hemisphere has. Yes. Anyway, sorry, yeah. you were in the... No, 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 that's okay. Uh, that's I, I'm glad to know that you agree with that, because that's kind of one of the things that comes up for me quite a lot. So then it was it, it, it's really great to see that you tackle um, the issues that kind of feel it kind of felt like I needed that whole uh, master and his emissary to get to these very simple questions, you know, a 54 hour audiobook that leaves you with nothing but some simple questions like what am I, which are simple, but obviously, you know, 
uh, yeah. like yeah. the uh, yeah. you know simple but massive like move this mountain from there to there you know it's a simple it's a simple task but uh, <laughs> but it's not easy um, and so yeah. one of one of the um, I guess elephants in the room for me when we're talking about this um, this new book and and the and this um, this materialist uh, mindset that has been developing um, mm. is that uh, and maybe you can comment on this. Um, I come from a, a religious background, a very religious background. And mm. one of the things that I, I was certain was calling me away from uh, religion and probably away from God at one point, you know, I was, I was preparing for that uh, eventuality. Um, was that there was this oddly, um, now I'm describing it as left hemispheric view of God that that predominated the religion that I mm. was in. And so all I knew was I had to get out of uh, what I'm now mm. recognizing as an ideology. I had to, uh, I actually had a kind of an impactful moment with scripture where I read, go from this uh, place in your father's house to the land that I will show you, uh, which hit me like a ton of bricks um, in kind of a revelatory way. And I knew that I had to get out and I didn't know what that meant. And as I went along that mm. path, um, I discovered people like yourself. And then lo and behold, um, I did not become a materialist. Uh, but I realized that in some ways, I was more of a materialist when I was deeply involved in a religion, uh, which is, mm. is kind of a massive tension, because it feels like uh, belief in in a, a, a grand mysterious God should be the least materialist, you know, position to hold in a way. Mm. But then, but then God was made into a material, mm. was brought into the known, was brought into the left hemisphere, and there was a, there were a lot of uh, fences put up. So, um, mm. I guess what's your sense? Because, like it, historically, religion has probably been part of what kept the right hemispheric sense alive yeah. and then mm. uh and nowadays there is at least a uh at least a noisy strand of it that seems to be doing the opposite does that does that resonate does that seem true with what you're what you've been researching and thinking yes um I, i'd like to talk more about that uh, the chapter of the book that um cost me most pains was um, the chapter called The Sense of the Sacred, which, uh, apart from the epilogue, is the last chapter in the book. And it's pretty much the length of a short book itself, because this, it's such a, a difficult and important topic. And I found that everything that one could say was, was problematic. And that, you know, it was going to need what you're calling a lot of nuancing. <laughs> and one thing I'd like to say about that, uh, just before we come to talk about um, the religious thing, is that you, you I know you were, you were shorthand, uh, you were speaking in shorthand, but you sort of said, um, you gave the impression that I think the left hemisphere is entirely negative, you know, that it's yeah. the... Yeah, right, the, right. The, um, and... I think it is when it takes control. 
um, this comes back to this very simple idea that it's a very good emissary, but a very poor master. And in fact, it turns out that Einstein said something almost exactly like that, hmm. um, which I didn't know at the time I read the book. And um, I think he said the rational mind is a, is a, a, um, a useful servant and the intuitive mind is a precious gift. Oh, wow. Um, we, we worship the um, servant and have forgotten the gift. Right. Actually, I can't trace that to anywhere in Einstein, but there we go. Um, but the idea is a good one. And it's in many religions around the world, actually. It's in, um, it's in, uh, it's in Zen, it's in Taoism, it's in the, in the Vedanta, it's even in um, North American native people's mythologies. All over the world, people have this sense that it's something that is constantly striving to usurp the part of our mind that is really wise, that, and it, it can talk loudly and it can be very pushy, but largely because it doesn't know very much. It thinks it knows everything, and that's the danger of it. So we need a left hemisphere. And one of the important, I mean, <laughs> You know, I wouldn't think it would be better if we all had a left hemisphere stroke, no. So <laughs> the point is that we need often contradictory elements. This comes back to the, um, the, the, um, the, the, the union of opposites that I was talking about as, you know, in, in the first chapter of, of um, part three of the book. Nothing good happens without resistance. Everything needs its opposite. Everything needs, there is, there is no creative anything that can happen without that resistance being acknowledged. Hmm. Two things that may make that sound slightly more plausible, just small images. One is that in order to move, there must be friction. And the whole point about friction is it stops movement. But without it, we couldn't move at all. Mm. And in psychiatry, one of the things that I found I was constantly helping people to do was to accept what Jung would have called the dark side, not to try and deny it or excite it, because then it becomes powerful, dangerous, tyrannical, mm. but to accept it humbly. And it brings healing when you do that. It's extraordinarily important, but it's something that particularly in a culture in which we're constantly um, told that we must, you know, do this and excel at that and be beautiful and be healthy. And, you know, everybody's so highly competitive in the social media world that it's very hard for anyone to acknowledge any longer their vulnerability. The one thing that's missing from debate at the moment is all about power. We must have power, you must have power. There must be power against power. But one of the great insights of all great religions and the mystical traditions of them is the power of no, the power of not saying, the power of not doing, the power of not acting. Um, in fact, of making oneself in a certain way vulnerable that makes one extraordinarily powerful to be able to do good things. Mm. So anyway, that, that's just a, a vignette there. But um, so I think it's very important that there's both the right and the left. And when you come to talk about religion, and one of the things that I you know, knew very little about until recently 
until perhaps the last 10 years, was um, the, uh, the scriptures and the, Ju the, the mythology of Judaism, and particularly mm. the Kabbalah. Mm. And it's been a complete revelation to me. Mm. And in the Judaic tradition, there are two uh, kind of um, brother or sister elements in the soul. And they're called Halakha and Agada. And Halakha is the one that makes rules and boundaries and rituals and makes things explicit and wants them written down and is much more, you know, uh, less nuanced, more about it's right this way, it's not right that way. Yeah. Um, whereas Agada is uh, open to the understanding of all the things that essentially are what the right hemisphere is good at. Mm. Understanding the implicit, that things are a matter of degree, that they're interconnected with many other things, including their opposites, that they're always changing and flowing, mm. that, you know, <clears throat> we must respect things' uniqueness, not just the fact that they belong in a certain box or category of mm. rules. So both of those are important, uh, says Abraham Heschel, who is, a, I think, a, a, a utterly brilliant and, and uh, no doubt very um, good man, um, a New York uh, rabbi uh, of the last century. Yeah. Uh, and he says, you know, Halakha and Agada need one another. But when God made, gave his people corn and wine, Halakha was the corn, Agada was the wine. Mm. Um, that reminds me of sort of Sufism, which mm. uh, in Sufism, when you see the very much more Agadah-like aspect of um, Islam, the part that accepts the mysterious coming together of opposites, of the implicit, mm. of the place, of humour, of paradox, of music, of poetry. Mm. Uh, and obviously against it, there is a fundamentalist streak, which is the caricature of this left yeah. hemisphere way of looking at religion. Reminds me of uh, Apollo and Dionysus. Well, there is that as well. And of course, in that book, I do, um, you know, flirt a little bit with that Nietzschean idea in The Master and His Emissary. Um, although I think that that's somewhat different because, well, anyway, we won't <laughs> go into that because it'll go off on a whole tangent. But yeah. to come back to the religion, Yes. What I think is that most religious traditions have these two elements in them. And because so much of religion has been presented as to do with propositions, believing certain truths, a creed, that a lot of people are put off by the idea that, you know, in order to have any kind of understanding of the divine or the sacred, they've got to believe six impossible things before breakfast, you know, and that is not the case. Belief is not a matter of subscribing to um, uh, propositions. And those propositions, by the way, are to be understood as the right hemisphere would understand them as myths, narratives, parables, not as factual, literal truths like a chemistry book. Right. And this causes a lot of confusion when um, people like, um, uh, what's his name, Jerry Coyne, you know, wrote a book called Faith Versus Fact. Okay. And he 
he rather like a number of these um, extreme uh, atheists, fundamentalist atheists, um, takes the view that if it's not true in the sense that it is in a in a, a chemistry book, then it's just not true. It's just a way of saying it's a lie. Well, yeah, you know. Uh, so is all great art and music, you know, is King Lear just a lie because does it not contain truth, even though it's a, a fable, the real King Lear was not at all like the one that Shakespeare talked about and so yeah. on. Yeah, no. So I think that, you know, science has got itself into a, it locked horns with um, religion. I don't know quite why, although I have some thoughts on why this happened, but it seems to have happened in the middle of the 19th century, 1830s, 1840s, through particularly to the 50s, 60s and 70s. Um, and that really did come from, um, from science. It picked battles with religion and religion behaved rather badly in response because you tend to mirror the faults that have you know, been uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, demonstrated to you. And so they became defensive and extreme in their positions too, in a most unenlightening way. And there were lots of things put about, such as that, you know, until Columbus uh, sailed to America, people believed the world was flat and if you went to the edge, you'd fall off it, you know. Well, actually, that's a, that's a 19th century invention. And actually, um, going back to, you know, 2000 years, most educated people knew that the world was round. So, mm. uh, and so on and so forth. Interesting, yeah. Um, but I, so, I can understand how you, you'd want to get back to an aspect of religion that is more right hemisphere based. And I think that if we could help people to see that it's not this matter of dogmatism, mm. it would, I think a lot of people who call themselves agnostics would start to see themselves as open to something spiritual. Because if you ask people, and are you a, you know, a, a signed up believer in a certain religion? In England, I think, because we're a very godless race, and I think <laughs> about 11% of people will say they are. But if you ask people, um, do you believe there's more to the world than the materialist account gives credit for? And yeah. um, 90% of people will say, oh, yes. Yeah. And a lot of them have had experiences. That they say, you know, were to them, like an experience of the divine so you know it's not a rare experience it's right. just that people are terribly put off by the dogmatism of certain kinds of christianity and i see mm -hmm. the big divide as not being between believers and atheists but being between fundamentalist believers and fundamentalist atheists on the one hand who are right. very very similar yes and the more nuanced um agnostics uh, on the other and believers who are able to admit uh, elements of what I would call the subtlety of the right hemisphere into their right. view. Transcendent atheism is something that I've been kind of searching for because I have this deep suspicion that there are some really inspiring uh, atheists who have had really amazing insights um, because they've kind of set God aside, but they've not made that into a fundamentalist um, presupposition. They're just like, I, I don't, I, I've never seen that God. So let's, let's, you know, let's examine life from that perspective. And I don't, yeah, I don't really consider those people to be materialists in a way. Um, so yeah, um, what I found with with my own religion was that you, you talked about, uh, you know, belief and, and truth being contained 
in uh, in myth mythology and, and story. And that's what I found was that, you know, I was raised in a Southern Baptist fundamentalist situation. And yet, I think just probably it was a blessing of my personality that the uh, that, that, that the encoded uh, truths and the encoded um, wisdom and beauty of uh, the Bible and of, of Christianity was always there. And occasionally it was a guilty pleasure. You know, I could, as I got older, I could imagine, uh, you know, what if God is, is all of reality? You know, what if, what if God is another description for reality and for the animating principle that causes cells to divide and that, you know, uh, that Rupert Sheldrake would say is, is, is the, is the, you know, God is creating echoes or God is the echoes of, uh, you know, of, uh, of form and function, uh, throughout time and all of that kind of thing. What if the, and my brain was always able to go there. And so it was kind of this paradoxical thing where I think my brain was probably able to go there because it exists in, uh, mythology and it, it, it exists mm. there. It communicates like the, the depths of these stories communicated with the depths of, of my, well, my subconscious and my right brain. And so I, I, uh, am, am cons well concerned or I, I devote a surprising amount of my time, sort of like this book for you was, um, uh, almost inescapable. Uh, a part of my brain is always is always churning on what you know on religion and faith and on god specifically because i can never drop it i can never just drop it and walk away and i can never embrace it you know i don't feel i feel uh, at odds with many people and uh and even uh, one of the people one of the people who's been on the show a couple of times on the podcast john verveke um has mm. been for a long time uh flirting with religion and he's even, I just noticed he was even recently on uh, unbelievable, which is uh, a British, uh, um, you know, Christian uh, show. And, and, and yet he'll never, he's not a Christian. And so there, his idea is that we need a religion. That's not a religion. And he's kind of trying to begin uh, hashing out what that would be. And I have extreme reservations about that, you know, uh, like uh, at one point he was calling for artists uh, to express these ideas. And I thought, oh, I had just this, uh, this almost like a trauma response from being a young musician at church and being told I needed to put my, music my, my musicianship towards uh, singing, you know, these, these fairly vapid songs for Jesus. Um, and, uh, and so it just this isn't really a question so much as um i i wonder if we're kind of in an axial age between religion actually being uh a, a portal for access to the to to the right brain world or access to the sort of more mysterious world um we're in an axial age where religion it needs to kind of evolve to continue doing maybe what it has done uh, and what it's supposed to have done in, in history, you know, like ne never perfectly, uh, because it's been, uh, human beings, you know, human beings, uh, pushing religion forward and, and, and moving religion forward. Um, I guess, okay, I'll try and turn this into a question instead of a rant because I have one of my favorite intellectuals on the screen and I'm talking, um, way too much, but, uh, uh, what do you, what do you see as a way forward, um, especially in the light of, um, and I don't mean this as, a, as an offense to you, but that many people will not read um, 
something like the master and his emissary. They won't read the new book. And nor, nor do I have judgment uh, for people who, you know, in this world with, with 40 hour work weeks and more, you know, and, and know. so much, you know, so, so much to try and do. Um, so what is, what is a way forward? Like everything in what you've written resists uh, a, to me, a rigid ideology. And what it actually implies is, is, is looking for a real understanding of the reality of mm. being a human being and of the reality of being a group and, a, and a, of a culture, the reality of being an animal on a, on a, on a planet with other animals and the reality of being a kind of a transcendent animal on that planet. Um, so yeah, what do you, do, do you have a sense of the way forward um, that to sort of get, communicate some of these things out and, and try and actually start shifting the, um, you know, the mass consciousness. Yes. Um, I suppose what I would say is that what I aim to do is to help people see things that they really already know. Um, in fact, if they don't already know it at some level, they won't understand it. And that's not because it's something peculiar about my work. That's true of everything, every kind of philosophy. If you don't, in a sense, already understand it, then the understanding won't come to you. So what I'm hoping to do is to unveil a way of looking at the world, to say, I think we can do better than this intellectually impoverished, morally jejune and spiritually um, un unfulfilling view that we are just pieces of machinery and the world is pieces of machinery and just get used to it. I don't believe this at all. Everything about um, everything I've studied and I'm a person who's incorrigible and keeps going off down different <laughs> paths but mm. everywhere I find a coherent picture the, the things I like in my book is that if you take the best in neurology in philosophy and in modern physics although they start from very different places they end up describing a very similar reality and that's very reassuring because you'd like to believe that if they were aiming for a reality that it would be a similar reality mm. and what's even more wonderful is that that reality is one that would not surprise or shock um somebody two thousand years ago mm. uh, it's just that we've completely forgotten a lot of these things so i do think that we need to as we put out the the messages that i try to deliver in these books um and I don't want to tell people what to do. People often say, so what should we do? And I always think, well, that's the left hemisphere kind of getting um, sort of windy and thinking, oh, goodness, what are we going to do? We've got to sort this problem. <laughs> and it's really not like that, because if we do that, we'll just do the sorts of things that we've been doing. Um, we'll have eight bullet points, and those will be the things that if we do them, everything will be fine. But it's not going to be like that. We're going to have to re envision what a human mm. being is and what the world is so that's mm. that's really what I, I hope with this book i know it's it's too long really for 
for most people, and I utterly sympathize. I, I usually say about The Master and His Emissary that it's so long that, you know, if I hadn't actually written it, I'd never have had time to read it. <laughs> and, you know, ipso facto, this book is, is going to be a problem um, because it's bigger. Um, but what I like to think is that it doesn't have to be digested at one go, that, you know, people can, there's a structure to it. And there are three chapters on science, there are three chapters on reason, there are three chapters on intuition and imagination. And so one can dip into those and one can look at the world picture that I, well, I show what the world would look like if we had failed really to take into account all that the right hemisphere is able to tell mm. us. And I look at, patients and people who suffer in this way and the parallels with the way our world is and is increasingly going are shocking and I think readers will see that very clearly. So I think those things are there almost as resources and I like to think that I've got something new to say about really big questions like the relationships between matter and consciousness and about the nature and importance of time. You know a lot of people including the great religious people say that time is not real time is an illusion it's mm. a very comforting thing to say mm. but i don't believe it you know one thing that makes me cross is that people say that you know people who believe in religious things do so in order to comfort themselves certainly not some <laughs> yeah. of it is not at all comforting um i mean i've been in this world through having at times um thankfully short-lived but very severe bouts of depression three or four times hmm. that are so dark those places I know they exist I know they're there that a soul can be tormented in that way and you know that's in this world I don't know what happens at death there may be absolutely no more of anything that continues for me in which case I won't be there to complain about it but I think it's quite possible that in some form my consciousness will contribute to whatever global consciousness there is and in that case, you know, religion is hardly um, uh, wholly a comfort. Hmm. And also, um, you know, I was brought up by parents who really had very little time for religion, and I, it was never forced on me. But I just, as soon as I um, encountered it, um, my school had a, a medieval chapel, 14th century chapel, and to hear the, the music of the Renaissance, you know, of um, Palestrina and Victoria and Talis and Bird and Lassus and all these great people, and to hear the words of the Book of Common Prayer written, you know, by Cranmer in, at the point when the English language was at its absolute most expressive. This was complete eye-opening to me. It was wonderful. And I, I didn't say, oh, this doesn't make any sense. I thought this is talking about the things that can only be talked about in this way. Hmm. Niels Bohr said, you know, two important things. One is that we can only talk about um, the physics of the subatomic world hmm. in what is effectively poetic terms. And he right. also said about religion, religions talk in terms of metaphors, narratives and myths because that is actually the only way in which certain profound truths can be conveyed, which is why we have a very high opinion of great poets and playwrights 
And because they are the ones that are able to communicate things that if we just boldly state them, we've missed completely. Right. Um, yeah. So, oh, sorry, Glenn. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that, that comes to mind, actually, uh, that I, I can see in your work, uh, perhaps you can tell me if, if I'm wrong, is that one of the way forward ways forward um and and by the way i don't mean to insult your books by saying people won't read them and and, and that kind of thing i just uh i, I, I <laughs> you, yeah. i'm not that, not that easily insulted okay good good, good 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 completely true i mean it's blatantly true <laughs> okay. so you know okay but um but i think what is sort of taking shape in my mind is a sense that um the truths that that uh, you're referring to are actually things that we we deeply long for and that maybe one of the Absolutely. modernist maybe one of the modernist um one of the downsides of the modernist uh view and of the left hemisphere view um is that we begin to try to dictate or deny our longings and mm -hmm. that really um the the moment of change for people, you know, the reason I was able to read, um, and I'm not actually a very good uh, reader. I, I have I have issues with reading. I can listen, and but uh, I have issues with reading. But the reason I was able to get through the Master's Emissary was because I longed for what you were giving in that book, uh, and something in me really needed to hear it, and wasn't hearing it in a lot of places, and 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 it strikes me that art and religion and all of that speak to the longing, and we actually, um, as a as a function of not being transparent to ourselves, we don't know what our longings might be these days. It's increasingly. Uh, people are increasingly unaware, and actually, uh, a bit of your book came to mind as, uh, in in regards to longing. And it was when you were speaking about modernist art and the attempts to step outside of of artistic traditions and and of uh, of considerations of of sort of making art for the human being and almost um, in a self conscious way dictating uh, a new aesthetic out of seemingly out of nowhere, and what what struck me was that um, when modernism occurred, art was probably as um, as accessible to people as it had ever been. People could see art. There were there are increasingly num an increasing number of ways to to rep to reproduce art, to uh, to show people. You know, I can look at the Mona Lisa on my screen, and uh, it, it it almost struck me that. Possibly one level of the of the most modernist, the most inhuman art is that it reveals a longing in people that they and and I don't think it ever comes to the conscious uh, mind because mm. the performative side of viewing that art won't really let you acknowledge this. Mm. But I wonder if maybe even in that most inhuman, uh, you know, uh, form of art, if there if people might be experiencing a vacuum that is speaking to that longing. And so I wonder if one of the ways forward is not not really intellectual so much as just just trying to help people to acknowledge their own longings and then see where they go from there because um you know even those even those modern artists had a longing to escape 
something or, a, you know, a possibly escape a, a tyranny or something like that. And it's kind of, it's a relatable impetus uh, in a way. Um, so, yeah, I wonder if there's anything, anything to that idea, because I feel like it took shape based on your writings. That longing is, is one of our kind of non-intellectual ways that we can begin, that the dominoes can begin to fall. Absolutely. And um, I'd just like to mention a book by um, a, a famous biochemist professor at Yale called Erwin Chargaff, uh, who um, wrote a book called Heraclitean Fire, which is absolutely wonderful on this topic and about how this relates to really creative scientific work. But that theme of longing is an important one because it can be deconstructed as uh, something which is just um, wishful thinking, as it were. Mm. Um, and what you and I are talking about is not that. It's an awareness of the fact that we are limited and that there are things outside that we can sense out beyond almost at the fringes of what we're capable of getting yes. that are very, very important. And that at times we do get them. That's the thing that reinforces this, that at times we are granted some sort of fulfillment of that longing. And the image is a very good one because, you know, the word comes from an Anglo-Saxon root, langian, which means to stretch out. And one of the ways I think of individual consciousness is that it's somehow like an outpouching of a, a vast sea of consciousness. Mm. Because what creation wants is neither to deny union or division. There should be individuation. It's all about the individuation that we couldn't have foreseen, the creative newness of all these wonderful beings. And yet at the same time, they're not atomistically distinct or at war with one another. They are, if you like, um, generated out of this um, field of consciousness. Mm. So the idea for me is that in this world, we are often aware of connections to things that we know we are connected to. And they are the profoundest moments of our lives. And for people who are not in any way religiously inclined, if they've ever really been in love, then they know just how powerful and quite remarkable the feeling of longing is, how it brings with it actually a sense of the transcendental, of all kinds of things that, you know, mm. for many people now are cut off because they're almost brought up to believe that religion is, you know, irrational and probably a bad, a bad element in our culture. But of course, um, if we actually turn our backs on those longings, then we miss most of the things that are valuable. And in fact, by paying attention to the things that I have longed for, that I have had such an enriched life really you know my, my passion for poetry um you know my, my fascination with neurology <laughs> the, the, the the sort of really transcendental feel of a wild and beautiful landscape 
These are the mm. things, music, you know, which can't be exchanged for anything in the universe. It's just itself. And it's so powerful and so moving. Yes. And it can't be reduced to any kind of a formula or to anything else at all. And if you take it apart, you're just left hopelessly with a heap of notes, none of which mean anything. So these, these processes that to which one feels oneself somehow attached and one responds. I like to think of the stretching not as inert, but as elastic in a sense, that there is something there that is calling to us. We are responding to that calling and even calling back to it and so on. This is an idea that George Steiner is extraordinarily good at expressing in his book, Real Presences. Mm. Anyway, um, so longing is important. And indeed I gave, a talk which is on the internet called um, either Longing and Wanting or Wanting and Longing. Okay. Because I wanted to make the distinction between wanting something and longing right. for something. Right. And the different qualities of these experiences and how one opened a door to spirituality and how one closed it down. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a longish um, talk with oh, I will discussion listen to after. <laughs> anyway, yes. <laughs> I will look it up. <laughs> there we are. It was at Heathrow College in London, which is a, a theological college, and they asked me to, to mm. give the talk. So, yeah. yes, I, I think that that idea is, is, a, is an utterly profound one. And again, it's if one denies it, then one loses a sense. One automatically becomes smaller than... Hmm. One, one becomes a dwarf of oneself, really, if you know what I mean. Yeah. In fact, somebody said, actually, that I can't remember who it was, who said, you know, modern men are dwarves of themselves. You know, they, they're hmm. no longer what they have the potential to be. As something I feel very strongly that, hmm. you know, we don't fulfill a quarter of our potential because, first of all, we're told that we don't have that potential. And secondly, we're told not to strive for anything, really, that we should just accept okay. whatever it is that we have and... You yeah. know, yeah. Are so, you familiar? Oh. <laughs> uh, are you familiar with the hymn uh, "Come Now, O Love Divine"? It, I am. Yes. The uh, I, it's something that struck me. I wrote it down. I keep a list of kind of uh, uh, inspiring. I guess you could say uh, poetry. It, it, I call them call them prayers. But I wrote that one down. And one of the things that struck me about that. Uh, was that the you know it, it's come now, O love divine, seek now this soul of mine and visit it with thine own ardor glowing. You know it begins with an invitation, but it the last verse, and this is what makes I think poetry instead of just uh, you know a, a wanting, uh, is it says uh, it says and so the yearning strong with which the soul will long will far outpass the the power of human telling, for none can guess its grace until they become the place in which the uh, the Holy Spirit finds a dwelling, uh, right. and and I, that that's kind of a that's kind of what I think of uh, when when you're when you're talking here that that came into my mind, and I also mm. think about uh, um, I've got a, a seven month old baby, and it, it strikes me that life begins, life begins with what the with unfortunately what could be a, the illusion of uh, uncomplicated and total communion uh, between mother and. Mm. And, and child um, and uh, and and there's not a great I mean there there may be a great sense of longing for a few moments when the when the baby is hungry um, and maybe this is a weird analogy to, uh, to to throw at you but um, 
then as self-consciousness take begins and, and as, as the baby individuates, um, that mm. becomes a kind of a lifelong longing mm. to return uh, to the kind of connection that they, they had at the very beginning. And I think um, maybe a, another um, left brain uh, possible red herring is, is the idea of the, the capturing of and the finding of the achieving of, the, of what we're longing for uh, being a satisfying thing. Um, whereas, you know, when we get what we want, it might be a satisfying thing when we eat the ice cream cone. Um, but, uh, but any, any actual capturing of that thing we're longing for will, will probably, you know, if it's that deepest longing, it will probably end up being, having been a surrogate or, a or, a, a stand in, um, and yes. yeah, go ahead. When we're wanting something, we're wanting a gift, but the longing is itself the gift. Yes. It's. It fulfills itself in a way, yeah. and it's a, a deep way of being, if you like, in the world. Without longing, we seem to skate more over the surface of it, it seems to me. Hmm. Um, and it's a very powerful human feeling, um, which in most people has been attached also to place. But we're now so uprooted and, um, you know, we live such extraordinarily... Um, hermetically sealed and insulated lives away from the natural world and the communities in which we would until quite recently have lived that that sense of longing for a place has been it's it's a richness that we've lost mm. but but in any case yes um i think yes i think that the idea of um fulfillment of a longing as you say if you if you I mean, one really unfortunate way to think of what you said about the separation of the child from the mother is that really our longings are just sort of Freudian displacements for something that mm. um, we're, we're, we're looking for. I think, you know, I don't rule out that that may be an element, but the trouble is that it, it somehow immediately devalues and degrades something that is actually powerful and is valued by us in the feeling of it and seems mm. to communicate with very much more than that. For, for instance, I think it is very strong in Wordsworth, who, you know, for me is perhaps the greatest of all poets of all time. Um, and in him, there is this feeling of oneness with the natural world which is not, as it were, a surrogate for the feeling of oneness with the mother. But you could equally say that the feeling of oneness with the mother was an important preparation for his illumination that he and the natural world were not uh, distinct, but were part of something that he has all these wonderful phrases like something far more deeply interfused and something ever more about to be. It, again, suggesting this business of a process that is always happening, not a finished act or a finished fact. Mm. Um, and I, one of the, one of the themes that I've um, I'm just going to pull a blind down. Oh there yes, I'm some... noticing that. Sorry. No, no, no problem. Yes, one of the themes in the book that I've been writing is the idea that although there is value in thinking about things, that really much more important is to understand them as 
processes, which is not to say that there are no things, but that I want people to reconceive them in the light of the way in which they are processes. And that also includes um, my attitude to spiritual beliefs, religious beliefs. There's that I, uh, I don't want to go off into all that, but it, it is quite an interesting topic for me, which mm. is the idea that whatever it is that the divine element in the cosmos and the cosmos are in a process of co-evolution, a constant coming into being, which is creative. And this is an idea that um, uh, you also find in Alfred North Whitehead, um, Process who theology. I think is a brilliant philosopher. I mean, you know, one of the um, authors of Principia Mathematica, but still um, a man of consummate sort of wise understanding and imagination. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So I would like to say, yes, that, you know, we shouldn't constantly be trying to cast one in, you know, our feelings about something now in terms of something to do with, you know, an unresolved problem in childhood. Because mm -hmm. after all, the really wonderful thing about the growing child is that at first it needs this feeling of fusion and so on, but it soon starts to recognize, very soon starts to recognize that actually it is not swallowed up by the mother, but is distinct from the mother. And mm. what I believe is that over that period of three, four years in which this process gets fulfilled, what a stable relationship between the mother and the child brings, and it depends very much on the right ventromedial frontal cortex of the mother, in communion with the right ventromedial frontal cortex of the infant. Um, and by the way, it is mothers, effectively. I'm sorry, <laughs> uh, infants are not really that interested in their fathers until later. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, But what I'm saying is that that process enables a child to make the wonderful transition to being independent, but also not estranged or separate or right. atomistically divided from the mother. Mm. And that situation of being together but not fused is the richer experience. And it's mm. carrying that forward into adulthood that leads to sane personalities that are able to, mm. um, you know, to, to, to navigate this relationship we have right. with what is other than ourselves, which includes the divine. Yeah. yeah. And you can give of yourself when you are individuated. You can give something to the mother who, who, who bore you. And uh, yeah, no, it's rich. And I'm glad you. I'm really glad you nuanced that because I was grasping, and uh, I certainly didn't want to be transmitting a Freudian, uh, you know, uh, worldview. Yeah. Except that, except that it does it does highlight that uh, you know an unhealthy uh, parent, an unhealthy mother mm -hmm. could. Uh, instead mm. of um, kind of facilitating that um, healthy distinction, could actually try to um, keep the the coherence going, the cohesion going, or the uh, you know the deep you know, and, and that would be a, that would be false, and then you would have a longing you know possibly for something that you you can't achieve again, and you might not appreciate the separation that that you do have that allows you to you know have that perspective. So, a lot of psychopathology. Um, centers on this uh, fusion of mm. a mother with her often by now grown up daughter or son or whatever it might be and or a father but it usually again is 
the mother and the, and the child that have this unhealthy fusion, which of course they inevitably think of as extremely positive. Right. You know, yeah. Um, it's so wonderful that we're so close that we have to do everything together. And, you know, and, and it, what one has to gently convey very kindly is that, you know, this is not in any way bad, but there are other ways of being that may be more right. fulfilling. Yeah. Because it's always, and this is a really, really important point, it's always about the, the balance of centripetal forces with centrifugal forces. Ooh, so and what is centripetal? I know centrifugal. Centrifugal is when things fly off apart. Right. Centripetal is when they, they come the other way together. Ah. And so if there is not a balance, for example, if there's a balance between centrifugal and centripetal forces between the earth and the moon, the moon will continue to circle the earth at a proper distance. But if the centrifugal forces became too strong, it would fly off into space. If right. the centrifugal force centripetal forces became too okay. powerful it would it would crash into the planet and i often think that a good analogy or image of a healthy relationship is like these two celestial bodies that circle one another and they're not just one but then they're not flying apart either and in that relationship they become more themselves not less themselves which brings me back to the the image of the proper evolution of the child in the loving care of the mother who doesn't suffocate the child and try to keep it as a child. The, the, the thing there is that the child becomes more itself and the mother actually becomes more herself. Mm. It's a pathological diminution of both when they stay uh, toxically mm. fused. Mm -hmm. I mean, these things ramify to so many places. But the structure that really, really um, is, is, is so important to me is one that was absolutely at the core of Goethe's philosophy. It's this one of, we need union and division, and we need them to be unified, not divided. Mm. Another way of putting that is we need both, both and, and either or. <laughs> We yeah. don't need either, both and, or either or. So we have to have both the both and kind of dipole and the either or kind of dipole. And preferably they should be, or actually necessarily, they should both be under the aegis of a both and. Sure. And Left this brain, comes right back to my, my, yes, this is the, um, also happens to the reality about the relationship between the right and left hemisphere. The right hemisphere tends to see both and, which is why it's able to see the possibility that something in its opposite may both be true, which the left hemisphere just goes, doesn't compute. So the right hemisphere is able to see the both and. The left hemisphere tends to want either or, black and white. It's got to be this or it's got to be that. And we all know people who are like, who are like that and certain movements in society that are like that. But what we desperately need is the overarching both and that can accommodate. Sometimes it's got to be either or, but hmm. let's try to make it as much as possible both and. Nice. And that, that the relationship is like that in the left hemisphere seems to not uh, want to communicate so much with the right hemisphere as the right hemisphere is willing to communicate with the left hemisphere. 
Mm. And the right hemisphere has no kind of illusions about what it knows. It's able to acknowledge things that it doesn't know because it knows so much. Whereas the left hemisphere, because it knows so little, um, thinks yeah. that it knows everything. Yes. yes. Um, and again, we all know people like that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is... I, I really like the uh, yeah I really like this as kind of a, a conclusion to the conversation in a way to 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 uh, I like that uh, way of looking at things and so uh, uh, I guess uh, I will kind of kind of wind down the situation uh, and and say that it's been uh, an enormous I mean life life goal lifelong uh i shouldn't say lifelong because i didn't know who you were when i was young but uh it, you know speaking to you uh, is is a real honor and uh, and i'm i'm very very grateful uh for the opportunity to do that and i'm i'm very excited uh about your new book which i will um chip away at uh over over time because the longing for what you're saying is there uh and uh and, and so uh yeah it, it when when is it being published do you know like when will it be available yes it will be published on the 9th of november by perspectiva press in london but from next week i think from the tuesday of next week you will be able to pre-order a copy on either channel mcgilchrist or on perspectiva's own website and there are two advantages to doing that one is that you get a discount and the other is that you stand a tolerable chance of getting the book ahead of its official publication date. Ah, um, okay. So uh, if you're at all interested next week, go to Channel McGilchrist and yes. click the button. <laughs> yeah. And as you know, I am, or you may know, I may not, I'm, I am a member of Channel McGilchrist and uh, have, have really enjoyed yeah, okay. the, the uh, discussions on there and everything. And I encourage people to, to uh, you know, if they, if they engage deeply with your work to go and, uh, and join, uh, join up Channel McGilchrist and meet other people. I, I, I do yeah. have to laugh at times uh, at how accomplished the people there are. Like I, I feel like the, uh, <laughs> I, I feel like the, the beggar at the banquet at times, you know, because everyone there is so, yeah, I've been uh, studying human psychology and I'm also uh, in my spare time I'm a rocket uh, scientist and you know like it's <laughs> woo it's uh, some amazing people so uh, I recommend it but yeah well I, I should also uh, just gloss that by saying there are lots of very good intuitively wise people who um, are not telling us about all their marvelous things but <laughs> so don't be put off enjoying oh, I... what I think is a very friendly um, forum it is very friendly I, and it's been a good exercise in humility for me to, to yeah, because they, they've all been wonderful. So, um, yeah, thank you very much for, for speaking to me today. This has been everything I hoped it would be. Well, you're very kind, Aaron, and thank you very much for inviting me.